to us in our Easter series. I'm just going to pray. Father, I want to thank you uh, for Naomi. I want to pray that as she speaks your word, that you would fill her with your Holy Spirit and that our hearts would be open to hear what she says to us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm feeling very far away from you all. See if I can do this without breaking. I normally break the lectern when I'm preaching, so you know this is this is much more dangerous than it looks. <laughs> we're okay. We're okay. Right. Have I have I got the? Um, are you going to do the PowerPointy thing? Thank you. <laughs> Slightly worrying when he seems to be taking the battery out, but I don't think he did. Right. So um, this is the the second of our three part Easter series. Um, of talks. Last week, Nick took us back to uh, the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples before he was arrested. And and he looked in particular at the the symbolism um, of the Jewish Passover feast that was was taking place at the time. Um, Because the Bible sees a really clear link between what um, God did with the people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, um, rescuing them from slavery and persecution in Egypt, and what Jesus does in the New Testament, rescuing us from the oppression of our sin. Um, If you want to listen to Nick's talk from last week, it is available on our website, as are all our talks. Um, Next week, on Easter Sunday, as Paul's already mentioned, he's going to be looking at the resurrection, Jesus' return to life, and celebrating the the new life um, that Jesus gives to all who, who follow him. But this week, we've got the bit in between. Um, Jesus' arrest, his death, and his burial. And the heart of the Christian message is um, that Jesus died to save us. But there's a question I want us to ask this morning. I don't know if you ever ask yourself this question, but sometimes I think, how how did Jesus, dying 2,000 years ago, save me today in the 21st century, whichever century we're in now, um, yeah, Jesus said to his disciples at, at the Last Supper, greater love has no one than this, to lay down his, one's life for one's friends. And he clearly saw his death as, as being a way of saving his friends. Um, and this is, this is just one of the many statements that, that Jesus made about giving his life for others. But actually, even then, did his death uh, actually make his friends safe? <laughs> or... Actually, did it make their lives more dangerous? Because they then became tainted by association with this this criminal of the state. And history tells us that many of his disciples were actually later executed themselves precisely because they followed Jesus and wouldn't turn their back on their faith in him. So it doesn't look like Jesus dying saved his disciples then. And it's reasonable to ask how on earth a Jewish man dying 2,000 years ago um, saves my life today. So we're going to look at this question in three parts, following Jesus from the garden where he was arrested, to the cross where he died, and finally to the grave where he was buried. Uh, I'm not doing this, am I? Here we go. I've got some nice pictures there. There's a garden, the cross, and the grave. And in each of these places, um, we're going to find clues that will help us to answer our question. 
Um, now, this story may be familiar territory to you, or it may be the first time that you're hearing these things. But my prayer is that um, God will speak to all of us today, whatever our situation, helping us to understand uh, better what he's done for us and how much that tells us of his love for us. So, we're going to start in the garden of Gethsemane. Um, This is actually there. A picture from today. Jesus often went to this place, um, and he went there after the Last Supper with his disciples. Um, the disciples still didn't understand what was going to happen to Jesus, but Jesus himself knew what lay ahead. And we can only imagine what might have been going through his mind as, as he waited for events to unfold. Luke, um, in the Bible, tells us that that Jesus sweated blood. Such was the intensity of of his emotion. Um, But in the garden, Jesus did what came naturally to him, which was he talked to his heavenly father. He prayed. And we're going to start this morning by reading a couple of extracts from his prayer um, as Matthew records it in his gospel. If you'd like to borrow one of the church Bibles, then stick a hand in the air, and Stuart, I think, will um, give you one. Uh, I believe the, if you give the green ones out, Stuart, if they're there. Uh, we are going to be reading from Matthew chapter 26, which, if you are using one of these Bibles, is on page 750. Actually, 751, the bit that we're reading. So Matthew 26, starting at verse 37. Sorry, verse 38. (laughs) Then he said to them, this is to his disciples, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And then just skipping ahead to verse 42. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Now, often um, when you read the New Testament part of the Bible, uh, the uh, the part from Jesus' life onwards, um, there are clues to understanding it to be found in the Old Testament, um, the part of the Bible which tells the the history of God's relationship with the people of Israel. And Jesus and and his uh, early followers would have all been very familiar with that story. So this image of of drinking from God's cup is found, um, it's used a number of times in the Old Testament. Once or twice, it's used in a positive way um, to talk about God's blessing. For example, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Um, uh, the psalmist says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And in this case, the picture is of, of God giving the psalmist a cup 
um, that, that is just so full. It represents all the many, many blessings that God is pouring out into the psalmist's life. And, and it's a good thing. More often in the Old Testament, God's cup is a cup of judgment given to God's enemies um, to leave them reeling like a drunkard um, and suffering the agonies of, of God's judgment on them for their sins as they're cut down by the sword. So, for example, God gives this message to the prophet Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. I think it's pretty clear which of these two cups Jesus has in mind when he's praying for the Father to take this cup away and yet also submitting to the Father's will out of love. It's not the nice, comfortable cup of blessing. It's the cup of God's wrath, his judgment for sin. But the question is, why on earth would Jesus, of all people, be drinking the cup of God's judgment? You know, in, in the Old Testament, the, the cup of God's wrath, um, I'm going to use wrath and judgment sort of interchangeably, really, um, it's clearly reserved for people deserving God's judgment, um, whether they're the enemies of Israel or whether it's re rebellious Israel herself um, as well. But when Jesus was put on trial, no one could find fault with him. The Gospels tell us that, that in the end, they had to use a, a combination of trumped-up charges brought by a couple of false witnesses, um, and they sort of combined with the political fear of Pontius Pilate, um, who was worried that he'd get into trouble for letting this person who claimed to be the king of the Jews go free. That was how they got Jesus convicted. It wasn't really a proper trial. Whatever verdict people reach these days about Jesus, if, if you ask them who do they think he, he was... Um, you know, and, and if you go for the sort of, was he mad, was he bad, or was he good, not many come down on the bad option. <laughs> Might think he was mad, but not bad. Um, Jesus attracted thousands and thousands of people um, through his teaching about love, about freedom from sin, forgiveness, genuine righteousness, um, and, and also through the incredible miracles he did, uh, feeding the hungry, giving sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, um, healing many, uh, delivering many from demonic possession, even raising some from the dead. And, and that was his public face. You know, what did his friends say about him? Did he, you know, was, he, was he good all the way through? Well, the picture we get from the Gospels, three of which were written by some of his closest friends, um, the disciples, uh, is that he was a leader who led by example, um, loving the people around him, uh, working hard for them, showing them compassion, and, and, and not afraid to get his hands dirty by doing the job that no one else wanted to do, like washing the disciples' feet. Um, even though he faced a huge amount of opposition in his lifetime, mostly from the relig religious leaders of the time, they found it incredibly hard to make any accusation stick. At the very least, Jesus was a good man. So why was he drinking the cup of God's wrath? 
So we can, we can look both backwards and forwards in the Bible to find some answers to this. So we're going to look back first um, to Isaiah, the prophet, um, in the Old Testament. And this is something he wrote about 600 years before Jesus' time, um, as God revealed to him something, something of his plan for a saviour. This is what he wrote. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Isaiah foresaw that one person would come who would die, not for his own sins, but for the sins of others, um, taking the punishment that they deserved in order to spare them. Looking forward in the Bible, um, Paul, who was, he was a later convert to Christianity, having initially tried to wipe the early church out, um, but who ended up writing most of the New Testament after he had an amazing encounter with, with Jesus. Um, but this is what he has to say about Jesus' death um, in a letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. He said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it was not for his own sins that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. It was for ours. Part one of the answer to our question, how did Jesus dying 2,000 years ago save me? He drank the cup of God's wrath in my place. It was our cup to drink that he took it. You know, some of us are, you know, some of us are pretty good people, <laughs> quite nice, generally polite, and you know, not wanting to cause trouble. Um, I'm not sure about everyone in the room, but you know. Uh, but even the best of us is like a sheep that's that's gone astray. We've wandered off the path that God planned for us of living our lives in total trust in Him. You know, none of us can put our hand up and say we've never done anything wrong. You know, God's ways are so good. If only we, we trusted him, the world would be a brilliant place. Um, but all of us have played our part in not going God's way. Um, and the result of that is judgment. And yet, instead of us drinking the cup, Jesus drank it for us. Okay, so moving on. Um, Judas, one of the disciples, brought Jesus' enemies to the garden where they arrested him, put him through an irregular trial and managed to secure a death penalty from Rome's, Rome's representative, Pontius Pilate, and Jesus was crucified. And this brings us to the, the second place where we're going to stop as we follow Jesus from garden to grave this morning, the cross. So picking up again in Matthew's Gospel, um, we've gone on to chapter 27, and beginning to read from verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene 
named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it back in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. Saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, leme sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, oh, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those, who were, uh, those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. So an excruciatingly painful and humiliating way to die. Chosen by Jesus in the garden as he agreed to drink the cup for us. The thing we're going to pick out from this part of the story to help us answer our question, if you've remembered our question, which was, how did Jesus dying 2,000 years ago save me today? Um, it's the curtain in the temple in verse 51, just towards the end there. It says, at that moment, which was the moment when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So as with the cup... Uh, Looking back at the Old Testament is going to be the key to understanding what was going on here. So, nice history lesson. The temple in Jesus' time was the third temple 
um, that the Jews had built in Jerusalem after the first and second ones had both been destroyed. And all three of them were modelled um, on the instructions that God had given Moses back in the desert to build a, a tent temple um, called the Tabernacle. And you can read about that right near the beginning of the Bible in Exodus. Um, and at, at this point in their history, the Israelites were living as a nomadic people, um, one huge extended family of about two million people by that stage, um, divided into 12 tribes and living in tents. Um, the instructions for what the tabernacle, this sort of tent temple, if you like, should be like, that they're part and parcel of, of God's wider instructions about how the whole Israelite camp should be set up. Um, and because God made, a, God made a covenant with the Israelites, a special promise of commitment and faithfulness, that he would be their God and that they would be his people. And, and the way he instructed Moses to organize the camp was significant because um, it put the tabernacle, um, the place that symbolized God's presence, right at the center of the camp. It was a statement that God was making of being with his people, right at the heart of the community. God wanted his people to know that he was with them. However, ever since people first chose to ignore the maker's instructions and to do things their own way, there has been the problem of sin. Um, God is holy. holy. Holy sounds a bit sort of remote and otherly, doesn't it? Um, but that's not a coincidence. <laughs> because if you think of, um, of God's holiness as being God's undiluted goodness and love, that is pretty otherly, pretty different to what we know um, in our everyday lives. And it's um, something which our tendency to go our own way takes us far away from. And that's the heart of sin. You know, sin is rebelling against God, um, and it, it separates us from him. There's no simpler way of saying it, really. The Bible describes God as a father. Um, he, created, he created people to live in relationship with him, knowing his lordship, yes, but also his fatherhood, his friendship, and his love. But sin changed everything. You know, which of us, as we've already said, can say we've lived our lives doing things just as the maker instructed? You know, none of us, obviously. And that failure on our parts, all our parts, separates us. It divides us from the relationship that God made us for with him. But it's not the end of the story. Um, in the youth, um, this term, we've been looking at God's big story. Um, the story you can see unfolding throughout the whole of the Bible. Um, and what that story tells us again and again and again is that God loves people and he has a plan to cross the divide that's created by sin. And that's where Jesus dying 2,000 years ago comes in. How do we know that Jesus dying crossed that divide? We come back to the curtain in the temple. Okay. The tabernacle on which the temple was based, was designed in two sections, so a tent in two sections, and then it was surrounded by a fenced-off courtyard. Okay? The two sections within the tabernacle 
itself were the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Any Israelite could enter the courtyard. Actually, in the temple in Jesus' time, um, there were three courtyards. So uh, the outer one, anyone could go to, even if you weren't a Jew, a Gentile could go to. The second one, if you were a Jewish woman, you could go that far, but no further. If you were a Jewish man, you could go into the final courtyard. But the only people who could go into the holy place were the priests. And the only person who could go into the most holy place um, was the high priest. And he could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement after all the right sacrifices had been made. So you can see that as well as being designed um, to show the Israelites that God was there with them, right in the midst of the camp at the heart of, of the community, wanting to be with them, the tabernacle was also designed to show there is a big divide between us. <laughs> there is a big problem with sin. God instructed the Israelites um, to make various sacrifices on the altar, which was situated out in the courtyard. And over hundreds of years, thousands of animals, sheeps, sheep, goats, bulls and pigeons, um, were killed, communicating the fact that there is a cost to people's sins. Um, as Paul puts it uh, in one of his letters in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. The animals died, but still, only the high priest could go into God's presence and still only once a year. So moving forward to the day that Jesus died, the curtain in the temple, tearing in two, tells us something really profound. The divide had finally been crossed. All the sacrifices for sin, the lambs, the goats, the bulls that had been slaughtered over the years had not bridged the gap. They never could. The person who, who wrote the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, he says that the, all those animal sacrifices, they were like a foreshadow of the one sacrifice that would count, that would bridge the gap. The willing death of Jesus, the perfect man laying down his life for ours. And that moment when Jesus died, he bridged the gap between us and God. So how does Jesus' death 2,000 years ago save us today? The cup tells us that Jesus um, dying saves us from the judgment that we deserve for our sins. And the curtain torn in two tells us that Jesus dying saves us from being cut off from God. Um, it actually tells us that God wants us to be in close relationship with him. He doesn't want us to be lonely, um, alone or afraid, but he wants us to know his presence with us every day. He wants us to know his love deep in our hearts. And each one of us is so important to him um, that he wants each one of us to be close to him. We're saved from being separated and excluded from God's presence by what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. It still holds good, and it always will. Through Jesus dying, we can know acceptance instead of rejection and love instead of despair. At the final place we're going to end up today in the Easter story is the grave. I hope it isn't a spoiler to say the story doesn't end here, but you'll have to come back next week for the happy ending. 
Um, let's read from Matthew chapter 27, again, um, beginning at verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Jesus was dead and buried. We're actually going to look at something Paul said again. I keep mentioning him this morning. Um, He had something interesting to say about Jesus being buried. Uh, It's the last thing we're going to look at today to answer this question of of how Jesus saves us today. And it's from Romans, um, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, funnily enough. Um, And this is what he said. He says, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Wait a minute, we were buried? Um, Isn't it just Jesus who was buried? When someone becomes a Christian, Jesus' instructions are to get baptised. And Now that word baptised, it means literally submerge. You use it of cloth when you submerge it into a liquid to dye it. You know, and you plunge it right into the water. That's, that's baptising it. Or it can be used of a shipwreck um, that, that when it sinks under the water um, and is submerged, it's baptised. Um, our kids used to play that in the bath when they were little. <laughs> I baptise this boat! <laughs> um, anyway, so baptism is like being dead and buried in the water. You can try and work out who that is being baptised later, <laughs> about to be dead and, dead and buried. Um, <laughs> that step of faith of, of being baptised into Jesus' name, as well as being a public declaration that you're now a follower of, follower of Jesus, it actually holds an, a deeper meaning. It's as though we are dying Jesus' death with him and are dead and buried like him. Fortunately, we also, people, we also bring people back up out of the water, um, just as Jesus rose to life. But, but why is this baptism, this, this being buried, important? Paul goes on in Romans to say, we were buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So it's like our old self, the self that did things our own way, regardless of God's instructions, that didn't put him as number one in our lives, that didn't love him with all our our being, is dead and buried. Why? So that we can live a new life. Jesus said that he came that we might have life in all its fullness, not a life hampered by sin and guilt and shame and all the stuff that goes with that, all the mess that our sin gets us into, but a life of sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, um, of knowing the love of God in our hearts, and of knowing God's presence with us um, day in and day out, of knowing the blessing of choosing to live life God's way, and even actually having the help of God's Spirit in us, when those choices are difficult, he is with us to help us. 
You know, and people in this room have all got different stories to tell of what, what God has, has done for them. I could tell you of that joy of having the slate wiped clean, of my sins forgiven, um, the excitement of seeing God's provision for, for me and my family when we've been in need, uh, the freedom brought by forgiving people who've hurt me um, and of <laughs> getting forgiveness from, from them as well. Um, and the way you know, God helps me to deal with insecurity and anxiety as well. Um, you know, when Jesus died and was buried, he made it possible for us, even today, 2,000 years on, to be saved from the emptiness of life without him and to live a new life with him at the centre. So in the garden, the cup reminds us that Jesus drank the cup of God's judgment in our place. We don't have to drink it if we put our trust in him. On the cross, Jesus crossed that divide, separating, um, separating us from that close relationship with God. And at the grave, we're reminded that our old life can be dead and buried along with Jesus, again, if we put our trust in him, and that we can live a new life with him at the centre. We're going to finish this morning with a, a short video um, just to give us a chance to reflect on, on what we've heard. And then when that's over, I'm going to lead us in a prayer to finish off. So I'm going to leave the technology to Nick and go and switch the light off and hope that it works.
Let's pray. I'm going to um, say a prayer in a minute, which um, is saying sorry for what we've done wrong and choosing to put our trust in Jesus and live life for him. If you're a, if you're a Christian already, you might like to pray this um, in your hearts as I pray, as I lead us out loud, um, as a recommitment to following Jesus. Um, but if you haven't ever prayed a prayer like this before, but would like to do so today, then please pray along with me in your heart as I pray out loud. But don't go away this morning without telling me that you've done so. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I've lived my life going my own way and not obeying you. I've sinned and I'm sorry. I turn away from living like that now and choose to put my trust in the life that Jesus bought for me at the cross. I choose to put you at the centre of my life and from now on to live life doing things your way. Thank you for your love and your forgiveness for me. Amen. And if you have um, prayed that for the first time today, or indeed if you, if you haven't, but you're interested in finding out more about what being a Christian is about, I have these little books which I would love to give to you. They are totally for free. Um, it just tells you a little, covers the sort of thing we've covered today, but it tells you a bit more about um, where to go next if you want to follow Jesus. Nick. Great, thank you.